You're listening to the Has Been Hoops podcast, and Chris, we've got a very special guest today, a former teammate of both of ours. He's a two-time NBL champion, an NBL MVP, a grand final MVP, and a three-time or two-time Olympian, two-time Olympian. Two-time Olympian. Uh, probably should have been a three-time Olympian, but uh, hey, we know that Sam McKinnon is one of the most straight-talking, well, I think people in Australian basketball, one of the most talented, one of the greatest, probably one of the most underappreciated. Sit back and enjoy our chat with Sam McKinnon. Sam McKinnon, uh, you've got a little bit more spare time at the moment. Thanks for jumping on the Has Been Hoops podcast. Plenty of spare time at the moment, mate. So <laughs> thanks for having to me this number one podcast in Australia. <laughs> you're you're going to help us get there. Hey, um, let, let's let's go. I, I want to go all the way back to the start um, when I was talking to Worth about how we start this thing. Um, I knew nothing about basketball when I started, and I used to walk in the old Albert Park Basketball Stadium back in 1995 and saw the magic training in that shoebox of the court that was court nine. And probably the first thing I learned about the magic was, was you, um, you know, you, you came into the league, uh, the, the, the game was in an incredible space and you were more athletic back then than anyone in Australian basketball. I mean, tell us about your introduction of the NBL and I mean, jumping into that time, or when, or when basketball was flying like it was back then and being one of the faces at such a young age, what were your memories of starting the game of basketball here in Melbourne? Uh, well, I think well, like my memories were going to Albert Park as a kid on a Friday night and having Margaret Gaze there collect a gold coin to walk in the door. Um, but uh, no, look, Albert Park was that court nine was where we trained with the Magic, I think, when you got involved. But I think prior to that... Um, yeah, just any kid in Victoria growing up, like there was Aussie rules influence and, and basketball, but I loved playing basketball and played juniors and all those tournaments in Shepparton and my dad getting lost and him having the nickname Melways and um, things like that were all part of my upbringing in basketball. And I think I started to get pretty good at um, 15, 16. And I think for me, the real journey started with like, Brian Gorgian recruited me and um, come into, I used to holiday down at Rye with the family and I think it was in 1993, I'd signed with the Magic and... He's like, Gorge came down to Rye. We actually met in Dramana, that was the only basketball court, there wasn't a basketball court in, um, there was only outdoor courts in Rye and there was one at Dramana. So my dad drove me there and um, I knew it was for real when I was doing an individual and I just vomited all over the place. Um yeah, I thought I was pretty fit and good back then and <laughs> what am I getting myself into? But, um, yeah, no, Gorge, that was when I knew I'd sort of gone up a level and, um, yeah, basketball was going to be my thing and 
you know, I always wanted to play for the Australian Olympic team at that stage. That's all I knew it was, was the Australian team going to the Olympics. So that was kind of a bit of a quick snapshot to, to how it got to, to Albert Park Court 9. I mean, you mentioned AFL. You had a genuine opportunity to play for the Carlton Footy Club. You were a better football player than most people remember. It, was it just your love of basketball or how, how tough was it to say no to the AFL? Yeah, it was Collingwood, so the Darabin Sorry. was my district. That you know, Everyone was affiliated with districts, so I played footy because I was a bit bored with basketball in under-15s and um, made the state squad for both football and basketball. Um, I think just because I was tall, I could sort of move pretty well and could take a mark. They were a bit um, besotted by what I could have been. And, um, yeah, there was definitely talks there to, to go on Collingwood's list. Um but I, yeah, in a, in a not happening, they they limited the, I think it was 55 people on a list and they brought it down to like 50 or something like that. So I think they always had those projects. Um, yeah, but that didn't happen and I, I chose basketball. Um, but yeah, I was played for St Mary's and I played fullback because my team was sort of stacked. And um, as far as I remember, I'm not sure if my coach remember this, but Whenever they needed to win a game, they put me down at full forward and I'll kick four goals in the last quarter and go back to full back the next week. But um, I actually, yeah, really enjoy playing footy. Um, my, my first memory of you, Sammy, was back at the Magic and I was a young Wildcat supporter back then. I guess my, my, my first memory of you was your dunk attempt over James Crawford. James now, Crawford. Probably- that was probably the, the best missed dunk I've still ever seen to this day. Walk us through, from memory, you got a steal, right? And and JC was the only person ahead of you. Yeah, I think I probably stripped Vlahov, drove past Ricky Grace <laughs> in a half court on someone. I think that's what happened from memory. Um, no, but, yeah, like, huge crowds back then, and I think um, the Alabama Slammer, I used to love watching James Crawford and... Uh, just the adrenaline starts to get going and you think you can do things you can't. And you know, I just recall coming down the bench side of the, in front of us and just sort of taking off just maybe outside the keyway or on the keyway. The keyway was a well, not squared then, but um, so it was further away. No, no. Um, um, but yeah, I just tried to dunk and I didn't realise how far I took off, I must admit. And... Um, there was, a, I think, a shot in the paper the next day, which uh, my family got framed. I was like, yeah, I was kind of trying to do a Superman. But, yeah, I think uh, yeah, that was my first year, but pretty pretty amazing. And to do that against one of your, your idols and not make it. But, anyway, it was, it was I, Can I just – I need to describe it because I was sitting on the bench and I I remember it vividly because you took off from so far and – since then, we've actually seen people like Vince Carter jump over. Some, it had never been even heard of in Australian basketball. Sammy, you were, you took off from so far out and you got so high, you actually tripped on his shoulders. So you were that close to jumping over James Crawford, your feet clipped or his, your shins clipped his shoulders at the last minute and you tripped and you tripped forward. And I'm guessing the photo that you've got is of you horizontal with your feet on Crawford's shoulders and you reaching out almost like Space Jam to dunk it, it was one of the most incredible misses I've ever seen. Yeah, I think I um, 
generally got a good idea if I'm going to make it or not. So <laughs> if I hadn't have clipped him, would have I got there or not? I'm not sure, but definitely that's the photo I do have of going horizontal like a Superman and reaching out like a fuck me moment. What am I going to do? I'm going to fall flat in my face. So, um, <laughs> yeah, but good memories and like playing Vlaoff and Ricky Grace and those guys in front of 12, 15,000 people. That was unreal. You mentioned a couple of things in your first question. I'm going to pick you up on this one first, the Olympic Games. You said it was always what you you saw basketball to be and you made the Olympic Games really young. You went to Atlanta. Um, talk us through that, but when you get around to talking about Sydney, for me, I've always described that as being one of the best and worst experiences of my basketball life. Participating in it was incredible. Not winning that medal when we got to the Final Four at home was was a tough one to swallow. So talk to us about Atlanta, get through to Sydney and then you know, how your international career essentially and or your Olympic career ended up uh, in Athens. Yeah, well, um, I guess for me, as I said, I, I had an autograph from Andrew Gates, which sat on mum's court board, um, which was to Sam best wishes. And I always wanted to play for Australia after that. So getting to Atlanta um, and being so young, um, I think I was a youngest bloke for a good four or five years and... Um, just eyes wide open with the whole experience, playing with those guys who were who I looked up to. Um, some so much, not these days, but um, for the most part, they're all um, really great human beings and welcome me in. And are we just going to let that slide, or are we going to pick up oh, on that? Don't worry about it. It's not worth it. Run, <laughs> who knows knows who that person is? Um, but yeah, the likes of Mark Branky and Vahoff and, and Drewy and John Dorge and um, some really good people around that group and. Um, I was just sort of along for the ride in your first one at sort of 18, 19 years old and getting selected. I knew I wasn't going to play, but I just was, you know, very pleased that Barry picked me and um, just tried to learn and and really sort of, for me, understand what it meant to play for Australia so that when I got my opportunity, I could try to lead that way, I guess you could sort of say. And um, but, but you did play. You, you probably played more than what you expected then. Yeah, I did play in some games, yeah. I think... Um, yeah, some of the games I, I think I did had like 12 points one game. Um, but, yeah, I did got opportunities to play at different times. I guess, as you said at the start, like I was a pretty good athlete and something we didn't have on the on the roster. Um, so I put him in there as a bit of a game changer and whatever I could do, whether it was defensively or, or get a lob play to get um, some excitement, um, some generation there. So that was sort of Atlanta for me and... Um, just playing against Sabonis in the final. Um, and I'm a big fan of Mark Brakey and against Sabonis, he was just so good. And just, yeah, we all tried help coverages defensively, but couldn't contain him. And um, my first Olympics, we came fourth. I'm like, oh, that, that was pretty good. But probably the guys that have been there for a number of years, um, they were a little bit disappointing because that was the sort of the one of the first opportunities to, to win a medal. And then um, I guess with a few guys, uh, well, with me getting old and progressing, you coming along, Jason Smith, um, there was a bit of a, a mix of the old and the new, um, which was really exciting. And, and going to Sydney, and as you said, it was to play at a home Olympics in Sydney, just to build up the carrying the, the, the torches and doing all that sort of start to it all, then getting the chance to, to go into the open ceremony. Um, just be around all the all the athletes. I really enjoyed all that, and with my second Olympics, um, and I had a starting role at that stage. Um, just with obviously with Drewy and Shane being the scorers, and I was going to always going to be the defender, and 
with Longley there, yourself off the, off, off the bench. I guess we're all buoyed and excited by the, the chance to win that medal. And um, as history says, and we played against a pretty good Lithuanian team and had some ups and downs in the in the, in the qualifying, um, some amazing performances and came up short again. And I guess... Just, me, just, just let me pick you up on the downs because everyone will talk about the stories through rose-coloured glasses. I guess I want to talk about what it's really like. I'd, and again, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I, I called you when I wrote my book. I said, you remember the night when we were that shitty about the way things were going? We, we need to get out of the village. So we took off our Olympic stuff for the first time. We went to the bar. We had to play Egypt or someone the next day. Um, it wasn't Egypt, of course. But it was someone we were just going to beat or, or two days later. And we, all we needed to do was get out of it. We, we, need to, we needed to not be Olympians for a night and just be human. So we went and had a couple of bars, at, a couple of drinks at the bar in the uh, at Sydney Olympic Park and sat and talked to the people who'd paid money to come and see this. And we probably, well, for me, that was probably the night I figured out how much the Olympics meant to others and what they were experiencing. And we needed to kind of enjoy it a little bit more. Yeah, that's, that's the one thing that I told you, like the first one I tried to learn from it. Um, and the one learning was it's a long time. When you're in basketball, it goes the whole way through the Olympics. So you're in a village and, and um, in Atlanta, Michael Diamond wins a gold medal. And he comes into the village and you're so fucking excited for him and you're just pumped and everyone gets around him. And then you're just going to, you're in a round. So you go all the way through. Then you, the swimmers, they have their thing where they all go in the first week and then they're back celebrating where you're just going to keep this level head. So I know at Atlanta, Luke Longy recognised this and um, got the whole group to come out in Atlanta and took us out for a few drinks and a few fish bowls and, you have to enjoy the experience. You have to get out there amongst it. And I think, as you allude to in Sydney, there was more pressure on us to perform because of where we where we had finished previously and being at home. And but you still need to have that outlet, whether it's just a beer or two, or just to get out and go watch another another event or go to someone someone's house. Um, they're kind of the, the lows, which you seem a bit weird by whinging about it, but that's the reality. And that was what, for me, unfortunately, I only went to two Olympic games, so I didn't get a chance to pass on my learnings um, to the group. Um, so not being part of 04 and 08, um, after two Olympic Games, I kind of figured it out what you needed to balance of performance and outlet so you can perform at your peak. And, um, yeah, for whatever reason, we couldn't get it done there in, in um, Sydney. I think uh, when the current people that look into basketball, they when they think about their boomers, they think about Paddy Mills' game, in the bronze medal game uh, and, and Paddy's shot versus Russia uh, at the Olympics. You were part of Tony Ronaldson's shot, which I think is the original shot for Australian basketball that sort of put us on the map. Tell us what you remember of that night and that shot from Tony Ronaldson. I was pretty new at it all and just sort of in a – wasn't great with my knowledge of international basketball, to be honest. Like I'd sort of just come in – and just juniors sort of knew a bit about who everyone was. And then just the significance of Drewy's speech before the 96 games. And then um, Tony was a teammate of mine, Big Bear, and just supporting him. And um, I just – I don't remember too much. I just remember hitting the shot, but everyone was just so – I think I might have been the first one off the bench, actually, if you see. Um, you were You were the quickest on the team. Yeah, I was the quickest, so that would that would um, and youngest. So, but yeah, I remember being pretty pumped about it, and then just 
yeah, we all got around Bear and, um, yeah, like he loved a big shot and um, that's kind of all I – like just that's all I really remember where though is just him making that shot and I was – I did see footage of it maybe a year or so ago. I was like, oh, I was a good teammate. I did get up and support him. So <laughs> um, I wasn't shitty that I wasn't playing or whatever. I was supporting anyone. So it was great. One time you were a good teammate and, and one of my highlights, mate, was you captained our under-23 uh, world Championship team in Melbourne and probably in a, in a similar vein to the Olympic Games, that started pretty average as well and, you know, what we did turned out to be historical and it's one of my proudest basketball moments. But today it's about you. Tell, tell us about your memories of that and, and where that sort of sits along your basketball journey. Yeah, you're right. It didn't start well. Um, losing the first game to... Turkey, was it? Turkey, Turkey in, yeah. in front of all the Turkish fans. Yeah. So, um, yeah, like there was lots of players dealing with different things. They're all trying to start their professional career. Um, we're doing well in the NBL and everyone's getting new contracts and coming to that level. And, um, yeah, some players were sort of um, targeted that first game and we lost. But, yeah, you just had to just stick together, um, stay tight and uh, – once again, it's a tournament play. It's not over within a week. It lasts a lot longer than that. So you've got to find your balance of um, performance and enjoy yourself. And I think the group there we had was pretty special. Um, lots of NBA caliber players. Um, obviously yourself there, Chris uh, Dwighty with what he what he did against the USA. Um, a little backcourt of, of uh, Brad McKinnon and, and Brendan Mann getting in there. Um, yeah, just had guys ready to play a role and put their hand up whenever it was needed. So in Melbourne, that was what I'd probably call my home games, I guess, um, being a Melbourneian. Um, just the crowds, the, the passion behind it. Uh, I think everyone got to see uh, who I call the best junior ever in Aaron Traher, um, hit the game yeah. winner. Uh, yeah, just like there's some pretty special moments and passionate fans from all around the world came and watched that on a smaller scale, but... Yeah, there was some chairs ripped up, some windows broken, and um, but overall, really good um, tournament for us, and something which for me ranks very, very high on, on my um, achievements and just enjoyment levels. Just talking more about Aaron Traher, I don't think he's probably spoken enough about these days. He he seemed to be, and you knew him a lot better than me, one of the best tournament players I'd ever seen, but just couldn't quite keep it together for the length of an entire professional season but what he was able to do in short spurts you're right he was world class and probably not spoken about enough yeah like a just a, a playmaker um laconic um people could say he and I were both laconic but um he was a gamer and I think I first witnessed that with Aaron when he had 36 points in the second half of under 18 nationals against us and um couldn't stop him and as you said, he couldn't get that done professionally, um, whether it was just outside influences or looking after himself. Um, but if there's someone who you're going to say, take the shot to save your life, it'll probably be Aaron because he just doesn't care. Um, he'll take that and, and make it nine out of ten times. And on a junior level, like in Greece, the 95 Worlds, um, he and I did okay over there and I... Yeah, like he was amazing. That's where it started. I wish it had sort of taken over professionally. Um, he's got a lot, a lot to give, really smart 
IQ-wise, like Jason Kadish for me, understands the game really well. Um, so, yeah, that was Azza and played with him at the Razorbacks. Unfortunately, my knee sort of went out on me, but he carried the group for a little bit there, which was nice. Um, but, yeah, unfortunately, couldn't get it done at a professional level. I'd, I'd, I'd say this about Aaron Traher. I, I remember when I was a development player for the Taipans, and he went on this tear when he was at the Taipans where I think he had four or five 40-point games over the course of six games. And it was because uh, I think Anthony Stewart was battling injuries and Benny Knight wasn't quite uh, playing at the level. And Guy Malloy just said, as I need you to go right now. And as in typical as faction just goes, okay, no worries. And then he just went out and just torched uh, four or five teams in a row. Um, but you are one of the few people that made a decision to leave Gorge and to leave the Magic and to go to Townsville. Tell us what was behind the decision to, to leave the Magic and, and head up. And I believe Stacker was your coach up in Townsville. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, and, and and go with this uh, fairly newish franchise up there that we're trying to get something started. Yeah, for me it was um, I love Gorge and um, probably – really lucky to have had him as my first professional head coach and um, understand standards, class, way to handle yourself, um, be very transparent and communicate. And to be honest, I probably struggled a little bit the back end there when um, things were going well. Like I think we lost to the Giants my first year in the semis or something and then we won a championship in 96. And then we sort of lost a few in a row, lost to the Tigers, lost to Adelaide. And I think just for my own personal game, I was just – I didn't think we were evolving as a, we were at offensively, and I know I was a bit of pressure to make NBA and things like that and just thought I wasn't doing enough on the court and probably chose to lean towards Stax. So I knew Stax. He was an assistant coach in 94 with the Magic, um, and he recruited me to Geelong with a – a Volkswagen car and a surfboard and 20 grand. So <laughs> fortunately turned that down um, to stay with the magic. But um, when he got the job at Townsville, uh, I just thought I wanted to, to change that up. And I left Gorge. I remember going to his house in Bailey Avenue and um, there was a few tears there. Um, it's nothing against Brian, but just where I thought I needed to go on my journey. And, um, yeah, that's why I chose to go to Townsville. And I remember visiting there in July, August and, had shorts and a T-shirt on and was sweating and we met the CEO, Dennis Keefe and his wife, and she's got a woolen jumper on and jeans and, and Ugg boots. He's like, it's bloody hot up here. I'm like, no, it's cold. So, yeah, I didn't know what I was getting myself in for, but um, that was Townsville. Before we get off, Gorge, I, 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 you said something, again, right at the very start in the second question I wanted to ask you. You said you did that very first workout and you vomited and you knew you were in for something different. I want to take you back to northern Arizona. <laughs> where you and Gord, you, you and Gord were having a we were on one of our end of season trips and you know we're playing at this stage we're playing uh, Northern Arizona University and you wanted to enjoy the trip probably a little bit more than Gorge wanted you to and um, just tell us about a little bit about the night you had and how the game was the next day um, yeah so the night we're looking for something to do um there was some NBA games on TV. I remember that because Billy McCaffrey was on and I think Duke was playing. So Billy wanted to stay in his room and watch TV. And 
maybe Mike Kelly might have been with me. Um, so he said, oh, the coaches are at a, a bar just getting some dinner. Um, they had these one-cent wings. So we went there and started with one-cent wings, but you get a bit dry, Chris, so you've got to wash it down with some liquid, some amber liquid. So, um, yeah, I don't know. By the end of it anyway, um, yeah, we're all a bit happy and uh, inebriated and, uh, yeah. And, 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 and you were pretty strong on reminding Gorge that even if you had a beer, you'd be okay playing the next day. Uh, I, I may have said that. I mean, I've been <laughs> reported that I may have said, yeah, I, can, I can back it up and I'll be fine. And, yeah, I think I did say that. I'll put my hand up for that one. I did say, yeah, I'll be right, Gorge. It'll be fine. And uh, the issue was Gorge loves shoot-around. So I was like, I've got to get myself up for shoot-around. So I get to shoot-around. They've got these spit bins. And I'm like, what, what are these spit bins for? Like, the high altitude, I got, I'm nasal anyway, so I'm coughing up loogies as I'm running around. And and you were dunking everything in the warm-up just to prove to Gorge that you were fine? Yeah. Just, <laughs> but this is shoot-around. So I went way too hard too early. And I think I got to the game and... Yeah, probably had two points and pretty ordinary, I think. So learnt my lesson then, and uh, yeah, it's a bit of a bit of a story that one. So yeah. you might have figured out that the spit bins were in fact vomit bins. Yeah, I didn't vomit during the game, but I definitely didn't feel well, and I think the the night before definitely caught up with me. So please out that if you're out there, just be careful with what you do the night before a game. Prepare well, <laughs> no drinking. I'm going to tell you. I'm going to say two words. Um, or one name, and I want you to tell me what you remember, if anything. Willy Wonka. <laughs> yeah, well, you can't be good at everything, Chris. So, um, <laughs> so I kept on telling myself, and free throws were a struggle for me. So um, I think a few people, including yourself, maybe if, uh, when I went to the free throw line, just said Willy Wonka to me, just... Charlie and Chocolate Factory off in La La Land, just try to get myself to a different place where I didn't think about shooting free throws. So I think that's kind of where that where that went. All, all I remember was every time that you'd go to the free throw line, there'd be 15,000 people <laughs> at the tennis centre. <laughs> you'd get to the free throw line and people would be losing their mind. It'd be a big game against the Tigers. And you got half the bench yelling out, <laughs> Willy Wonka, and you're looking across going, shut up. <laughs> Anything to distract me. Um, yeah, no, I try to tell people I was really good at late in my career at the back end of games, but no, I just I could never shoot a free throw. It's all in my head, still is to this day. Um, I'm glad the uh, Hungry Jacks thing wasn't around back in the day because I'd be giving out lots of cheeseburgers. <laughs> well, you said uh, you can't be good at everything, but you were a really bloody good one year, and that was your MVP year with the Bullets. MVP, Defensive Player of the Year, won a championship. Uh, I know uh, Chris and I were both playing against you at that stage and I think it was probably one of the most dominant seasons that I'd seen in my career in the NBL. I know Joey Wright described it as probably the best NBL season ever by an individual. How, how do you look back on those times as, as an MVP that year and what you were able to do with that team? Um, yeah, it's probably one of those times where my body and my mind aligned. Um, might sound a bit corny, but I remember coming back from the, the Worlds in 06 and I, I missed a lot of basketball between 2000 and 2006, but I'd probably got one or two years of straight basketball leading into that Worlds and 
we had a tournament in Coffs Harbour, I think, and I just, I don't know, I felt like I had it on a string and I could do whatever I needed to do to get us to win and I recovered well, my body, my knees weren't sore, everything was good and um, we had a good roster as well, clearly, so really good support around there with, with Bradkey and CJ and I think Joey kind of figured it out too as far as coaching and allowing guys to um, succeed and fail a bit and not be too harsh. So there was that perfect balance for the whole club. And um, as I said, I felt pretty good and felt like I had most people's number on any given night and um, really enjoyed that season. And, yeah, to win a championship and go on a, a win streak and all those sorts of things were were part of it. And, I, as I said, I did win some awards, but it was also really – it was a fun team to be around. One person who believes you did not have his number was Martin Catalini, uh, <laughs> who I catch up with quite regularly and, and see around the traps. And he still reminds me that that year that he put 50 points on you in a game. Anything anything for Cat? Well, I had a, I was actually in Cairns a few months ago and Cat was there, so I spent a few days with him. And I think it gets brought up within the first two sentences. Hey, Cat, how are you going? Remember when I scored 50 on you? Straight away, straight away. It's like, Gap, but I've told you this. Dusty Reichardt guarded you in the first quarter and you had 25 on him in the first quarter. So I'd say your eye was in. And it went to like triple overtime. So technically I held a 25 over. That's what I say anyway. But um, no, he's probably got a fair criticism as the process of Defensive Player of the Year that year. So, um, yeah, he did drop a few on me that night. But um, that mid-range and three ball was going, that's for sure. Maybe the you're more there, Sammy. No, and Catalini's nose kept on getting in the way. Like he kept on hitting. (laughs) Massive nose. Uh, Hey, hey, the three of us played together in in the Tigers. You and I played our last game together, which I thought was a a really nice thing to sort of almost bring it back to where it started. But you know, by the time you got home to play in front of your family and, and probably a lot of your friends in Melbourne. I know you had blood clots in your legs. Your knees weren't great. Probably didn't quite finish up the way you wanted to. But coming back to Melbourne and, and, and you know, reflecting back on your career, the, the time at the Tigers, the Bullets, how, how do you evaluate your NBL career? Uh, I'm always a hard taskmaster or a judge, I guess. I think when you stand back and look at it, it was it was really good. Maybe it wasn't as good as it could have been, but um, I've got to start, start looking at glass half full or glass half empty, whichever way you want to look at it. Um, yeah, I would have liked to achieve a few more things personally, but they were the cards I was dealt with. Um, proud of the way I sort of handled myself. I think whenever I went to clubs, I was, um, I guess, respected and sort of voted in as captain and wasn't just about me. I think I tried to help the young guys get better. Um it's something I learned from my time with the Boomers is you treat from the guy starting with you to the guy, the development players, and I think they'll always say that I was pretty good to them. Um, and I've tried to take that through with my role recently with the Brisbane Bullets and um, be there for everyone. And um, ultimately, I think I'm respected in, in basketball and I think that's all that really matters to me is that um, people knew that when they came up and played against me, I was going to get a good, hard, fair contest and, yeah, Always have a beer afterwards. I know Luke Kendall and I are always appreciative of the uh, 
taking you under under your wing and and showing us how to wash down chicken wings. Um, but uh, one thing that's not on our run sheet, but I think it's appropriate that we talk about, is the uh, infamous training session with Julius Hodge. <laughs> <laughs> And just to paint, just to paint a picture, <laughs> Sammy, Sammy was in the last year of playing. Uh, we had brought Julius Hodge in. Um, there's so many Julius Hodge stories, oh. to tell. but but it, let's let's be honest, he was one of the worst teammates we ever had. I think we can all three of us can agree on that one. But um, Julius was ultra lippy this day. And uh, I believe Sammy, Sammy might have told him to be quiet a few times and, and he kept on going and he kept on pushing the envelope. And I think from memory, this is how the conversation went. Julius, if you say another word, I'm going to punch you. And Julius started going into his stance and his fists are up and he was backpedaling at a rate of knots. Like someone's like, hold me back. And no one held him back. No one was going to hold him back. And then Sammy just starts walking towards him and he's going backpedaling. And Sammy goes, let me tell you what's going to happen here. You're going to throw a punch. I'm going to catch it with this hand and this hand's going to knock you out. Now, Julius is almost at the tunnel backpedaling at this stage, <laughs> still telling people to hold him back, but no one's holding him back. What do you remember from that session, Sammy? Oh, yeah, were they there? Some moments in life where you, um, yeah, I don't know. That guy, that guy was an absolute wanker. Um, not a good human being, bad teammate. Um, I wasn't in the best state of mind with, with basketball, um, but just yapping away and I was just like, just shut up, please, just be quiet, like just let us play. And um, <clears throat> I know why I didn't throw a punch that day because my son was in there. My son was at the training. I know that in all seriousness. Right. I think that's why I didn't throw a punch. Whether it... I, thought th- I must admit, when you started with that word, I thought you were going to talk about the day when Sammy got all of the underwrap and put it around his neck and then <laughs> held his arm up. So we... <laughs> another story was that Julius was—he was really good at getting injured at the end of a game oh, and, not, and, and not training and not training all week, and then miraculously being ready to go on Saturday and. There was a one day he turned up in a neck brace on the Monday. Just when we were all talking about, I bet this guy doesn't train tomorrow. He turned up in a neck brace and he'd had a cast on his, a, on his right wrist. Yeah. yeah. And so Sammy, just before training started, everyone was taping their ankles. He got a whole roll of underwrap and taped it around his neck <laughs> and then taped up his right arm and started warming up with his right arm above his head. <laughs> and his neck taped up with underwrap just to, yeah, it was. Yeah, I may have. As I said, wasn't in the best space and tried to make light of a situation when, you know, you've got a group of guys trying to compete and he's just there for his paycheck and taking the piss. So, yeah, didn't sit well with me. It's probably not the best segue to get into, you know, you're, Brisbane, you're moving across from a player to the Brisbane Bullets and you became a front office staff member. You ended up becoming CEO. You coached uh, in an interim capacity for four games. The, however far you want to go in, but the differences between 
being a player and actively involved in trying to help a club succeed on the court as opposed with what you have to deal with off the court in trying to help it succeed. Yeah, different roles. Like I went into an assistant coach role there for a few years and then um, I kind of just just before COVID, we had a few people leave the club. Richard Clark, who did a great job of, ran, did every single role um, with the Bullets um, and someone I didn't really understand until he left, I think, just the, the um, nature of his job and managing stakeholders and um, so I jumped into the, the GM role and off the court, so you straight away become, so to speak, the player enemy because you're the one doing contracts and um, trying to manage budgets and get performance and. How did that sit? With, how, how did how did that sit with you? Given what you just said about how highly you were respected from your teammates when you played, and you had to flip that around. Yeah, it's, I just try to be as honest as possible. There's no doubt. There's the Will Magne one. Today still doesn't sit well with me. Um, that was a real tough situation um, when I first got the role and with COVID and balancing that out. Um, that was without doubt the hardest one. Um, but I think for the most part, like with Lamar, how well he was going, I just try to be up front with him. You know, this is where we're at and um, things like that uh, I found comfortable to do because you could have that relationship and just be honest with the player. Um, but, yeah, I think just... I missed the on-court nature of it, like being around the group and being one of the guys, so to speak. And like, are you really, when you're a GM or a CEO, whatever it is, are you really part of the group? Like you can come in and talk to people, but we all know when you're actually a head coach, assistant coach or a, a manager of a group, like you feel part of the team and what they're going through day to day and help that. So... That was something I definitely missed, and when I was that interim coach for a few for a few games, uh, really enjoyed that that space, and um, yeah, loved coaching the guys and just that interaction and getting everyone on the same page. But uh, yeah, it's definitely things I've learnt in the last probably eighteen months to two years, exactly, with um, and reflect on my time in the role and uh, no longer there. But um, yeah, we'll see what's next. Just when you were speaking just then, what period did basketball stop being basketball and start being business for you? Was it when you were a player or was it when you got to the front office position? Because I felt like by the end of my career as a player, it had definitely turned more into a business than what it was of, you know, playing basketball with mates, having fun. Obviously, we were getting paid for it, but there was a definite change for me at the back end of my career? Yeah, the back end of my career with the Tigers wasn't wasn't good. I um, I had a plan to sort of retire early in, in Brisbane, but then Eddie Groves uh, had some unfortunate stuff with his business, so the bullets wound up and I'd started to transition into my life after basketball. So I think for me, I realised that um, my body was gone and I wasn't having much fun. So I knew I was transitioning into life after basketball, trying to get away from basketball as well. Um, so that, my last couple of years there, um, I was kind of travelling up to Brisbane to try to get this franchise thing up and going. And then, I don't know if you guys remember, but uh, we were with Elfington Sports Medicine Clinic for physio, and I needed physio, and but no one wanted to drive an hour to go to physio. Yeah. So I just started seeing Rob Donatus at Sandringham, which just made sense, was right next door. 
I think everyone just started going to see Rob and paying off their own bat. So I think even though I wasn't performing well and um, knew my time was ending, I was always, I think I was trying to put things in place to help the young guys learn. And because um, I want everyone to be a long-term basketball and have a great career and get to a, travel around the world and meet lots of new people. So it was really good for me. But, yeah, I was ready to get out of it and then start into business where though and got involved in that and needed to get away from basketball post my, my playing days. Um, but then you just get back in coaching coaching your kids, um, sort of sucks you back in where you just sit in the grandstand saying, yep, I'm pretty happy. And then you make <laughs> eye contact. You're like, do you want some help? And like, oh, yeah. And it just sort of goes from there. Um, yeah. Uh, so you basketball, it's that love-hate at times. Um, yeah, and I, I, I hope everyone could have careers in basketball, but it's just not the nature in Australia as far as a, a, a admin side or a coaching side is very limited capacity. So you've got to be willing to travel around the world and there's some great young coaches in in America and, um, yeah, wish them all the best, but we probably won't see them coach in Australia. It would be remiss of me not to speak about it. When I got the flick from coaching the Tigers, I wanted nothing to do with basketball again. And probably the reason we're doing this podcast and the reason it's called the Has Been Hoops podcast is that I had a phone call from Andrew Parkinson and he'd been a part of an old, well, the Paperboys basketball team that played out of Frankston. He was one of the younger guys and was trying to keep that alive. And uh, Sammy, you were a part, you're an inaugural part of, what we built to be the has-beens and, and we started probably for the reasons you've just described going away together some of the old magic guys the tigers other guys we played with over the years and doing exactly that just having fun and this is the uh it's actually the first time i've had three has-beens on the has-been hoops podcast so it's a it's an iconic episode sammy yeah we might as well pick up it um what are those guys that the has beens group? What does that mean to you now, having said what you've just said? It's what it's about, I think. When with basketball, um, you can kind of just pick up where you left off last time you met these guys. You got that um, thing in common, which is basketball. Your love for the game and you want to see it thrive. And um, we've all had our different uh, experiences with it, but the has beens for me, um, just like Parky, you know. We always, it's funny, right? Parky and Bear. So they used to take me to Nando's when I was a rookie and I was like, how can you afford this? Like, can I have cheese on my burger and all that sort of stuff? And they were kind of both on the larger scale too my first year. Um, uh, <laughs> and then you kind of wonder about how everyone's going to go post battle. Someone like Parky um, got better as he went on with his looking after his body and um, he plays six times a week. Uh, he was at one stage, but um, it's just good picking up with that. Like, hopefully we can get Bear to come on a has-beens trip. Like, I I don't like the basketball because I can't – I struggle. I'm not a shooter like you two, so I can't just stand there and ping threes. Um, <laughs> you could actually run. I mean, I can ping threes, but they might not go in very much. So I think I'm going to move myself to, like, assistant coach, assistant team manager. But um, I just like hanging out with the guys. Like, I like sitting in a room – with 14 blokes squeezed on a bed, just talking about stuff. Um, it's good times, good fun. I'll yeah, looking forward to the next has-been trip. And, yeah, the crew that we go away with um, is really good. 
We're heading up to Cairns soon. It's only a few weeks away, so uh, can't wait. Now, the question that we like ending this with, Sammy, it's a little bit of a deep one, but one of our guests we had on earlier uh, in the piece was Paul Shirley, my old Russian teammate. He's got a quote in one of the books he wrote, um, and we're gonna, this becomes our last question, so it's this. Heaven's arriving at the end of your life and realising that the story you've written with that life is a story that someone would read. So the question is, what's the chapter that you'd like most people to know about or the most important lesson you've learnt that you'd like to share? It is deep. Um, I think for me, it's just, uh, <clears throat> just the care I think I have for... Um, Oh, jeez. That's a hard one, Chris. Do I go personal or do you go... Whatever you want, mate. We've both yeah. been through the same personal stuff too. Yeah. I think it's just that I care. Probably care too much at times um, and probably struggle to maybe at times articulate that. Um, I'm very matter-of-fact and sort of straight down the line. So maybe me as I enter my second phase of my life, maybe just to... Uh, help write that chapter and get people to understand how I do care. Well said, mate. Well, we know you care. We also know exactly how honest you are. Um, but the one thing you might have been a little bit uncertain about as a mate and as a competitor and as a teammate, mate, you were one of the greatest that Australian basketball's ever seen, I think. Your name often gets left off some of the lists when we talk about the greatest of all time and not just what you did here in the NBL, but what you did internationally to make sure that that team could succeed and set the table for what those boomers did in the last Olympic Games. So, Sammy, you're a champion, mate. Thanks for jumping on the podcast. Uh, we'll see you up in Cairns in a few weeks' time. Appreciate it, my has-been brothers. Good luck, were they, for the mighty NBL 1, Williton Warriors, whatever you call them. But, um, yeah. Tigers close. Yeah. Good luck. <laughs> Thanks, mate. See you, gents. Thanks.